Section 4 of Last Call for Sector 9G by Lee Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Keserick of Southern Ohio. Last Call for Sector 9G by Lee Brackett. Four. The monorails came out onto the surface in bunches like very massive cables and then began to branch out, the separate wires of the cables eventually spreading into a network that covered the entire moon. The taxi picked up speed, clicking over points as it swerved and swung, feeling its way onto the one clear track that led where its scanner had told it to go. Durham was aware obliquely of other monorail taxis in uncountable numbers, going like the devil in all directions, and of other types of machines moving below on the surface, and of mobile cranes that walked like buildings, and of a horizon filled with the upthrust noses of great ships like the towers of some fantastic city. Beside him, Susan Hawtrey sat, rigid and quivering, and before him on the opposite seat were the two young people with the guns. Durham said, in a voice thick with anger and fright, Why did you have to drag her into it? The man shrugged. She is perhaps part of the conspiracy. In any case, she would have made an alarm. What do you mean, conspiracy? I'm going home to Earth. She came to say goodbye. Durham leaned forward. You're the same two bastards from last night. What do you... Please, said the man contemptuously. He gestured with the gun. You will both sit still with your hands behind your heads. So Wanbekai will search you. If either should attempt to interfere, the other will suffer for it. The wiry young woman did her work swiftly and efficiently. No weapons, she said. Hi, Wanbek, look here. She began to gabble in a strange tongue, pointing to Durham's passport and ticket, and then to Susan's ID card. Wanbeck's narrow eyes narrowed still further. So, he said to Durham, your name has changed since yesterday, Mr. Watson. And for one who returns to Soul 3, you chose a long way around. Susan stared hard at Durham. What's he talking about? Never mind. Listen, you... Wanbeck, is that your name? Miss Hawtrey has nothing to do with any of this. Her father... is part of the embassy which sent you out, said Wanbeck, flicking Susan's ID card with his finger. Do not expect me to believe foolishness, Mr. Watson Durham. He spoke rapidly to Wanbeck I... She nodded, and they both turned to Susan. Obviously, you were sent with instructions from Mr. Durham. Will you tell us now what they were? Susan's face was such a blank of amazement that Durham would have laughed if the situation had not been so extremely unfunny. Nobody sent me here with anything. Nobody even knows I came. Lloyd, are these people crazy? Are you crazy? What's going on here? 
He said, I'm not sure myself, but I think there are only two possibilities. One, your father is a scoundrel. Two, he's a fool being used by scoundrels. Take your pick. In either case, I'm the goat. Her white cheeks turned absolutely crimson. She tried twice to say something to Durham. Then she turned and said to the Wanbecks, I've had enough of this. Let me out. They merely glanced at her and went on talking. You might as well relax, Durham said to her in colloquial English, hoping the Wanbecks could not understand it. I'm sorry you got into this, and I'll try to get you out, but don't do anything silly. She called him a name she had never learned in the embassy drawing rooms. There was a manual switch recessed in the body of the taxi, high up and sealed with a special plastic. It said emergency on it. Susan took off her shoe and swung. The plastic shattered. Susan dropped the shoe and grabbed for the switch. Wanbeck yelled. Wanbeck's eye leaped headlong for Susan and bore her back onto the seat. She was using her gun flatwise in her hand, solely as a club. Susan let out one furious wail. And Durham, moving more by instinct than by conscious thought, grabbed Wanbeck Eye's uplifted arm and pulled her over squalling onto his lap. Wanbeck started forward from the opposite seat. Don't, said Durham. He had Wanbeck Eye's wrist in one hand and her neck in the other, and he was not being gentle. Wanbeck Eye covered him, and the two of them together covered Susan. Wanbeck stood with his knees bent for a spring, his gun flicking back and forth uncertainly. Wanbeck Eye had stopped squalling. Her face was turning dark. Susan huddled where she was half stunned. Durham shifted his grip on Wanbeck Eye's arm and got the gun into his own hand. Now, he said to Wanbeck. Drop it. Wanbeck dropped it. Durham scrabbled it in with his heel until it was between his own feet. Then he heaved Wanbeck's eye forcibly at her husband. It was like heaving a rag doll, and while Wanbeck was dealing with her, Durham managed to pick up the other gun. Susan lifted her head. She looked around with glassy eyes and then, with single-minded persistence, she got up. Durham said sharply, Sit down. Susan reached up for the emergency. Durham smacked her across the stomach with the back of his left hand, not daring to take his eyes off the Wanbecks. She doubled over it and sat down again. Durham said, All right now. Damn it, all of you. Sit still. The taxi sped on its humming rail farther and farther into the reaches of the spaceport. Below, there were the wide, clear spaces of the landing aprons and great ships standing in them, their tails down and their noses high in the air, high above the monorail, towering over the freight belts and the multitude of machines that served them. Ahead, there was the on-racing edge of twilight, and beyond it, coming swiftly, was the lunar night. Durham said to Wanbeck, What's all this about? Wanbeck sneered. You know, said Durham, 
There's a law against changing the color of your skin for the purpose of committing criminal acts. That's so the wrong people don't get blamed. There's a law against carrying lethal weapons. There is even, humorously enough, a law against espionage on the hub. You know I'm going to turn you over to the authorities. Again, Wanbeck sneered. He was a hateful little man, but he looked so young and so proudly martyred that Durham almost felt sorry for him. Almost. Not quite. On second thought, he said, I guess I'll save you both for Jub. That was a random shot, prompted by the memory of how their faces looked when the shadow thing had squealed that word at them. It hit. Wanbeck's face became distorted with a frantic hatred, and Wanbeck I, rubbing her throat, croaked, Then you are in league with the beast. She pronounced the name with unmistakable capitals. Who said I was? asked Durham. The dark bird came to help you. It told us Jub had claimed you. It did, said Durham softly. Did it? The dark birds will soon fly. The dark birds merely refer to a couple of ships engaged in poaching. That's what you say, Mr. Hawtree. What is a dark bird? You mean that shadow thing? They are the servants, the familiars of the beast, said Wanbeck, the instruments by which he hopes to enslave all humanity. Do not pretend, Mr. Durham. I'm not. This Jub, what is he beside the beast? Wanbeck stared at him, and Durham made a menacing gesture. Come on. I want to know. Dub is the ruler of Senyadik. And Senyadik? Our sister planet. A dark and evil sister, plotting our destruction. A demon sister, Mr. Durham. Have you ever heard of the Bitter Star? Never heard any of it, but I find it very interesting. Go on. Whoever controls the dark birds controls the star, and whoever controls the star can destroy anything he wishes. This is Jub. Wanbeck thrust out his hands. You're human, Mr. Durham. If you have sold your soul, take it back again. Fight with us, not against us. I assume, said Durham, that Jub is not human. Wanbeck I made an abrupt sound of disgust. This is silly, Mr. Durham. If you know so little, why are you going to Nantadik at all? Durham did not answer. He did not have any answer to that one, wondered if he would ever have it. If you are so ignorant, continued Wanbeck I viciously, of course you don't know that the Terran consul Karlovic is over his head in intrigue conniving with Jub in order to make this Treaty of Federation. Durham sat up straight. A treaty of what? The Sector, said Wanbeck slowly, will belong to either the human race or the beast, but it cannot belong to both. Federation, said Durham, answering his own question. And suddenly many formless things began to fit together into a shape that was still cloudy, but had a sinister solidity. 
In order for a solar system to become a member of the Federation, its member planets were required to have achieved a unity among themselves, with common citizenship, a common council, common laws. And in order for a subsector to become federated, all its solar systems must have reached a like accord. In this case, since the system of the two deeks was the only inhabited one in the subsector, the two things were the same. The fate of 9G rested solely on the behavior of two planets. If 9G remained unfederated, the company or companies engaged in mining or other business under local license could continue to operate in almost any way they chose, as long as they kept the locals happy. They could strip the whole area of its mineral resources, pile up incredible fortunes, and leave the native worlds with nothing. But if 9G became a member of the Federation, Federation law would immediately step in, and Federation enforcement of same, and if there were any abuses of native rights, the people responsible would suffer for it. Postulate a company. Postulate a connection between it and Hawtree. Postulate and postulate. At around 300 miles an hour, the taxi plunged into the twilight zone. Lights sprang on automatically. Outside it became dark very swiftly, and the darkness roared and glittered with a million lamps. Who, asked Durham, is principally against your two worlds uniting so that the treaty can go through? All of us, said Wanbeck fiercely. Shall we give up our rights, our independence, our human institutions, everything our race has stood for? Wanbeck I cried out, We will never unite, never. No one can force us to betray our species. Susan began to cry. Please, said Durham. Baby, you're all right. You hit me. I had to. I'll apologize later. Be quiet now, Susan, please. He turned back to the Wanbecks. Everybody on Nantadeek feels that way? There are traitors everywhere, said Wanbeck darkly. Some of them, unfortunately, are in positions of power. They won't be for long, said Wanbeck I. Look here, Mr. Durham. You're going to Nantadeek with a message. We aren't the only ones who want to know what it is. Jub has sent a dark bird for you. Take my advice. Tell us your message and go back to the hub. Susan said in a nasty, muffled voice, You're insane. Nobody would trust him with a message to the milkman. He lost his job because he couldn't be trusted. Without rancor, Durham said, You're absolutely right, darling. And wouldn't it be strangely fitting if that's why I got my job back again? He said to the Wanbecks, Somebody tipped you off about me. Who? We know him only as a friend of humanity. Somebody must have sent you here from Nantadeek. On our world, there are many friends of humanity. Think of them, Mr. Durham, when you kiss the bitter star. The taxi slowed, strongly and smoothly. The blurred panorama of lights and ships became separable into individual shapes. Durham stared out ahead. 
there was the squat form of a freighter ugly and immensely powerful on a landing apron only partially lighted the margaretta k durham asked who owns her universal minerals and who owns universal minerals several people i think all earthmen who speaks for universal minerals on nantadeek a little reluctantly wanbeck said there is a man named morrison the name rang no bell in durham's mind it brought no visible reaction to susan's face either though he was watching it closely and how he asked does morrison feel about humanity ask the bitter star said wanbeck and the taxi slid to a halt beside the platform on which durham now saw that several men were standing wanbeck and wanbeck i hunched forward expectantly no said durham i'm getting out but you're not he nudged susan get ready the door slid open automatically. Susan scrambled out. Durham went right behind her, twisted like a cat in the opening, and splashed a brief warning blast off the floor at the feet of the Wanbecks, who had raised a frantic cry and were trying to follow. Susan said breathlessly, Oh! The men who had been standing on the platform were now rushing forward. Three were lean and butter-colored. One was a burly earthman who said in a tone of amazement, What the hell? Hold it, Durham shouted. He swept Susan behind him and tried to cover all fronts at once, not knowing whether the men were there to capture him or were only there by chance in responding to the Wanbeck's cry for help. These people attacked us. I have passage on your ship. From out of the night there came a shrill, flat, hooting cry of jab 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 the butter-colored men yelled they scattered away and out their feet scrambling on the platform the earthman was slower and more belligerent he turned around and the spiky little blob of darkness came leaping at him he put up his hands and struck at it and the dark bird hooted as the fists passed through it cackling the Earthman opened his mouth in a round, shocked O oh, and went rigid, rising up on the tips of his toes. The dark bird seemed to merge with his skull for the fraction of a second, and he crumpled down with his mouth still open and his chest rising and falling heavily. The dark bird swooped toward Durham. Durham fired at it. It soaked up part of the beam and left the rest like a well-fed cat rejecting an overplus of milk. It darted past Durham and into the taxi, where it bounced agilely, once and twice. Wanbeck and Wanbeck I fell down on the floor. The doors closed softly, and the taxi mechanism whirred, and the rail hummed as it took off heading back to the main terminal. The dark bird returned to Durham. Susan said in a strange voice, What is that? Never mind now. Come on. He started to drag her toward the ramp that led down from the platform. She fought him. 
She was getting hysterical, and he didn't blame her. The dark bird followed along behind. When they reached the level, Susan planted her feet mulishly and refused to go any further. I don't dare leave you alone out here, he said desperately. Come along to the ship and the captain will see that you get back safely. The dark bird circled and dived at Susan. She bolted. It dived at Durham. He bolted, too, off to the right, to the edge of the apron, where he caught up with Susan again. They ran between the storage sheds, onto a spur of the freight belt system. It was still now not carrying any freight. They tried to run across it to the other side, but the dark bird drove them back. It was immediately apparent, of course, that the thing was hurting them. He shouted at it to let Susan alone, but it did not pay any attention to him. And he thought, it wants us to go somewhere, so it won't knock us out. Maybe? It's worth a try. He took Susan and jumped off the belt and ran. The dark bird touched him, ever so gently. He tried to yell, gave up, and tottered back where it wanted him to go, with every nerve in him pulled taut and twangling in a horrible, half-pleasurable fashion that made his legs and arms move unnaturally, as though he were dancing. The dark bird followed, once again placid and unconcerned. They went along the belt for some distance. It was limber, sagging a bit between the giant rollers, and it boomed under their feet with a sharp, slapping sound. Susan stumbled so often he picked her up and carried her. There was nobody to call, nobody to ask for help. The towering ships were far away. The dark bird nudged him again at last, out across a landing apron, where a very strange-looking ship stood in the solitary majesty of impending takeoff. The floodlights were blinking at twenty-second intervals, visual warning to stand clear, and Durham ran staggering as though through a stroboscopic nightmare, with the white-faced girl in his arms. Dark. Light. Black. Bright. A haze of exhaustion swam before his eyes. Things moved in it, jerky shapes in an old film in an antique penny peep show. Day, night, dark, bright. The things moved closer, unhuman things clad in fantastic pressure suits. Durham screamed. He tried to run again, and the dark bird touched him. Once more there was the unbearable twitching of the nerves, and he danced in the black, bright, day, night. He danced into a large box that was waiting for him, and he kept going until he struck the end wall of hard metal. He turned then and saw the very thick door go sighing shut and the dogs go slipping into place, snick, snick, one after the other, and it was too late even to try to get out again. He set Susan down as gently as he could and sank down beside her, the floor moved up under him sharply. There was a bonging and clattering of tackle overhead, and then a sickening sidewise lurch. The on-off pattern of the light changed outside the two round windows that were in the box. It became a steady green, 
in which his hands showed like two sickly white butterflies on his knees. There were more noises, hollow and far away, and then a second lurch, a lift, a drop, and after that a larger motion encompassing the box and the entire locus in which it stood. Durham put his face in his hands and gave up. End of section four.